So several years ago, uh, while living in San Rafael, California, uh, Corey and I were leading a Bible study that was connected uh, with our church that I was the associate pastor for. And one day I'm in my office, I get this call, this random phone call from a girl in the community who says, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about Jesus and the Bible. Do you think I could come to your Bible study, one of your Bible studies at church? People in ministry, how often does that happen, right? So I was like, "Uh, sure, come on over. So she brings a friend with her to this Bible study. And she's genuinely interested in learning about Jesus and learning about all these awesome questions about the Bible. She stays late that evening um, after most of the people had left. And so I start to ask some questions. I'm like, so why, why are you so interested in this? What, what makes you just call up a church at random? And I found out she was from an agnostic family upbringing, so like really no draws to Christianity in her background. And um, she says that, that she's just really looking for a way in life. And I said, so how, where has that led you thus far? She goes, well, actually, I've been checking out lots of different religions and most recently Buddhism. And I said, well, what was it that caused you to check out Buddhism? I mean, that wasn't part of your family background either. And she says, well, I saw that new Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. Remember when that came out? And uh, she said, oh, I thought the Buddhists betrayed in that movie were really peaceful people, except for where they were samuraiing each other. But... Um, and she said, I thought, I thought that would be a really great way of life to emulate. Well, it turns out that that wasn't working so well for her, so she was checking out Christianity now. As I, as I got to know her a little bit better over time, uh, I found her to be a woman of quiet desperation. Uh, a woman who is searching for, for meaning, deeper meaning in her life, uh, to figure out where she fit in into the larger story of life. And I think her quest, the quest that she was on, is one that really we're all on. And that is a search for genuine hope in our lives. We live in a world largely without hope. We live in a world that is notorious for fits and starts, but little follow-through. We live in a world with fads and gimmicks, but little substance. We live in a world where we are so ungrounded and transient that a woman is willing to base her faith on a Tom Cruise movie. And we chuckle. But do we in the church live any better than that? Oftentimes we live, I think, based on wishful thinking that's couched in religious God talk. We say we hope in God, but really what we want is for Him to do whatever we want. We ask for wisdom, the wisdom of God even, but we live as though our lives are stuck on the set of the movie Dumb and Dumber. Surely to be a classic, Dumb and Dumber follows the two endearing idiotic characters whose ridiculous decisions and comments are repeated by even more ridiculous decisions and comments. This is perhaps typified in Jim Jim Carrey's character when he's smitten with a woman who's way out of his league. And he says, so what are the chances, you and me, you know, at working out? She says, one in a million. He notoriously says, so you're saying I've got a chance, right? What makes it comedic is that he has absolutely no chance. It's absurd. There is no hope for this guy. Right? He's basing this comment on mere wishful and delusional thinking. Well, there is an expression of real hope that comes out of a prison around 62 AD. From his imprisonment in Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote one of the most encouraging, hope-filled writings the world has ever known. His hope is not rooted in circumstances or comfort or wealth. His hope is rooted in the risen and reigning Jesus. 
Paul wanted the churches of Asia Minor to know of this great hope in Jesus. And he wants the whole church to know who we really are in Christ. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want genuine hope? Stand with me as we read Genesis 1, 15 through 23. I do want to point out that the first part of Genesis 1.15 starts with these words, For this reason, it's taken us four weeks of sermons to get up to this reason. We've taken four weeks to get from Genesis 1.1 to 1.14. And what Paul is doing here is reaching back. When Paul says, for this reason, he's scooping up verses 1 through 14, and he's about ready to apply them to what he's going to say next. So let's go ahead and refresh ourselves with those first 14 verses. And Rosemary is going to put up a slide. And let's say this together. We are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God. We are predestined to adoption through the Son to the Father, redeemed through the blood of Jesus, forgiven We have had the mystery of God revealed, the summing up of all things in Christ, been made God's inheritance. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance, all to the praise of the glory of His grace. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, literally filled with light, so that you would know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Father, make these words, these glorious words, come alive in our hearts. Do the miracle, Lord, of changing us today by being exposed to You and Your Word. Amen. You may be seated. So, Paul, reaching back to the first 14 verses, drawing all those verses and all that amazingness into his current line of thought. He thanks God for the church whenever he prays. He doesn't cease to lift up the church to God. And what does he pray? Let me read it. He prays that the God of our Lord, literally the God of our King Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's the knowledge of God, not Paul. True hope 
True hope is always based on, on fact. It's based on revelation. It's based on something of substance. But facts are not enough by themselves. We actually need to incorporate the facts of what Paul has been praising God for in the first 14 verses. Otherwise, they're just fluffy talk. Really great words and maybe wonderful writing that the world can say, Oh, that's great literature. But if it doesn't come alive for us, that's all it remains. He knows how difficult it is, and so he prays for more than just having the facts. He prays that we would have wisdom. He prays that we would act upon the reality of God's choosing us and adopting us and redeeming us, etc., etc. And Paul knows that we need more than information. We need revelation. We need God to show us what he's talking about. We need God to reveal himself. And Paul prays that we would have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Now, I don't know about you, but the minute I think knowledge of God, if you want to know more about God, you, you could Google God and come up with some stuff. Or you could go to India and write G-O-D, and it might come up with a list of attributes or different gods around the world. Some, maybe a little more astute, may look into a theology book and say, well, what are the attributes of the Christian God? What is this talking about? Or you might read J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which is a wonderful book. But if you were to read Packer's Knowing God, you would know that knowing God is more than reading Knowing God. That Knowing God is more than Wikipedia God or Theology Book God or Google God. When Paul prays, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. He's not praying that we would know more stuff about God. He's likely drawing from a Hebrew line of thinking. Because those are Paul's roots. And to know someone is to know them intimately. To know them intimately. See, Facebook wouldn't have even been imaginable for the Apostle Paul. Because a friend was not somebody who you went to high school with 20 years ago and just never talk to and know what they eat for breakfast and what their two-year-old funny thing that they said or how, what they think someone else thinks about politics and then they put it on their Facebook wall, right? That's not, that's not what knowing someone is to Paul. It's really not knowing what someone is at all, but that's a different thing. In fact, in some, in, in some cases, the Hebrew word uh, for knowing someone really it, it overlaps with intimacy, like even sexual intimacy. So Adam knew Eve. If, if that's just knowing what she ate for breakfast on Facebook, how did Cain and Abel come out of that? I'm just saying. So knowing is this real intimacy term. And, and I don't think Paul's suggesting that we have a sexual relationship with God. That, I don't know how that would work. But he's praying that we would grow in intimacy and in relationship with the living God. He's praying that we would know and love and revere the God who did the things in verses 1 through 14. And he unpacks this a bit more in the next line. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory in the inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. There are actually three fun Greek words in here that you probably have heard before in different English word. So let's start with that word heart. He prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Of course, in Greek, the, the, the word for heart is cardia. So you might do some workouts for cardio so that you could avoid going to the cardiologist so you don't have a cardiac arrest, right? So cardio is a, uh, the word for heart, cardia. And to us, uh, the cardia is an organ in the body. I'm glad Emily Fraser isn't here to critique me, but uh, he's got, from all, well, I know it's two atrium and two ventricles and electrical impulses makes it all go together. But, I mean, to most Americans, cardia is, is, a, is a piece of meat that pumps blood. 
Right? It, it, it's a part of our body. It's, it's an organ. Maybe for the more romantic types, heart might talk about the emotions. Valentine's Day coming up. My, my daughter Sophia has made valentines for all the kids in her class. They're all the shapes of hearts. You get the little candies with the hearts. You know, okay, so, so heart might have a little uh, uh, connotation to the emotions in our culture. <clears throat> but the heart is so much more in Hebrew thought. The heart is actually, um, even in ancient Egypt, it was thought that when somebody died and they go to the underworld, their heart would be weighed on a scale. And judging by the weight of that heart, it would, it would sum up whether they're a good enough person to go on to the good place or a bad enough person to go on to the bad place. And in Hebrew thought, again, that's Paul's background, the heart was seen as the whole foundation of the person, the spiritual seat, the emotional seat, the physical vitality came out of the heart. Even mental thought was thought to come out of the heart. It's where they believed the origins of thought came from. So when Jesus is teaching on the heart, he teaches that the, it's the heart that is the source of all good thought or bad thought. He says, you know, what you eat can't really make you an impure person. It, it's what comes out of the heart. And for all of our contemporary talk about holistic medicine or holistic problem solving or holistic dieting, the Hebrews had it right way before us. Because they believed the heart Unified the whole person. There was no concept of your thought life and your emotional life, and I got to work on my physical life. It was all together in the heart. There's another word here in Greek, ophthalmus. Ophthalmus. When you need work done on your eyes, who do you go to? The ophthalmologist, right? So ophthalmus means the eyes. Paul talks about the eyes of the heart. In the ancient thought, eyes were one of the pathways to the heart, to influence the heart. It's how you brought truth or revelation into the seat of who you are. So Paul prays that the ophthalmos, the eyes of our cardia, our hearts, would be enlightened, filled, literally filled with light. For that, that word enlightened comes from the Greek root uh, photizo, from where we get our word photon or photograph. Right? All having to do with light. So if our hearts are the seat of our identity, if what we believe and the way we live is based on what is in our heart, then Paul is praying that the eyes which feed our heart would be full of light and truth. In fact, later on in this very book, Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that when we were without God, without that revelation, we were darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of heart. The idea is that our, our hearts are, da- are darkened, really, from false uh, information. We're calloused. We are calloused to the good news that Jesus really is king, really is in control right now. We just don't believe it. Not fully. And our lives show it. So to illustrate this idea of, of light and heart, I, I thought of a photograph. So Rosemary, put up that first photograph. And you can kind of see the, the silhouette of a mountain there. But you can't really make out the photograph very well. There's not enough light coming through the aperture. So in the next photo, there's a little more light. And you can, you can see more of the big picture. You can believe a little bit more of what that scene really is. Until we get to the third picture, which has full light and um, you know, skyline divide, right? Now, skyline, that, that is the same photo I took this summer on our anniversary hike. The, that is the same exact photo. 
Skyline divide is skyline divide is skyline divide. It, it really is there. It really does look like that. But if you don't have enough light coming into the sensor of the camera, which, by the way, you could think is the heart, if you don't have enough light coming in, you can't perceive the reality that's really there. Paul is praying that all of those words, that vista of, of Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, which is real, which is there, he's praying that our aperture would be open, that we would get that whole scene. Because most of the time we live as though that's not the reality. Many of us have been living in the dark so long or with distorted views of life that when we're confronted with reality, like Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, we can scarce take it in. The words go in one ear and out the other. It takes, and I believe, I believe this through and through, I think it takes a miracle of revelation for us to grasp this reality. And that is exactly what Paul is praying for the church, for you and me. He's praying that God would help us to get it. To transform us. I think that the more and more of that truth that takes root in us, the more it will absolutely change our lives. We cannot live the same way if we begin to believe that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted by the living God through the Son, redeemed, forgiven. It's amazing. Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be filled with light, specifically hope, in three things. First, he, he prays that we would uh, receive the hope of our calling. Let's face it, we're pretty egotistical. We think a lot about ourselves. Even in Christian leadership, I don't know how many tests about me I have taken. Uh, there's a Myers-Briggs and the Golden Temperament Sorter and the Enneagram and the Disc and the Strengths Finder. Right? And there's lots more than that. They all have their place. In fact, I'll probably ask us as a church to do some kind of test like that. And if you're on the leadership team, you've done some with me. In fact, I'll even go so far to say that knowing thyself is part of spiritual maturity. But, let me say this maybe as clearly as I can. Knowing who we are pales in comparison to knowing whose we are. And maybe a better way to say that is knowing whose we are will tell us who we are. That's where we need to begin. So Paul wants us to place our hope not in the fact that we're all ESTJs, the best Myers-Briggs, or whatever number or acronym you come out. He wants us to hope in the fact that we are called out of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In the ancient world, to which Paul is writing into, there is very little hope. I've mentioned in the past weeks uh, in this series just how poor living conditions were in the urban ancient Roman world. Disease frequently decimated whole communities. Um, fires were common and would take out whole cities and whole city blocks. Death was everywhere, and if not death, chronic sickness, chronic fleas, rashes, open sores, toothaches, dism dismemberment. The physical conditions were horrible, and they they weren't even the worst of it. I think the worst part of the hopelessness was that there was no social or religious movement that could really deal with people's hopelessness. People believed that whatever happened to them was fated by the gods that way. That their life was just already written out 
And it was just going to turn out either bad or worse. And so each city-state had its own patron god or goddess. And for Ephesus it was Artemis, the, the goddess of the hunt or fertility, depending on which form you, you, she took. Um, and they would believe that, you know, the gods weren't nice, but they could be bribed. And so you made the right sacrifices. It might extend your life or get you a little extra blessing. But in the end, we're all fated to go downhill. Klein Snodgrass, a New Testament scholar and a covenanter, uh, remarks that a common epitaph on people's graves read like this, I was not. I was. I am not. I don't care. I didn't exist. I existed. I died. I don't care. And that was a common reading on people's graves. How depressing! Right? And yet, for all of our modern medicine and social security nets and self-help positive thinking, we're really no better off than them without Jesus. We just, some of us, have the ability, if we have enough money or enough friends, to mask our hopelessness with power or success or substances or turning sex into a place, a way to self-medicate, and the list goes on and on. And that's if you have enough resources to do those things. We need to hear that we are called by God to be His people. We need to hear that we have been called by God to be His people. And how we need that message to take root in our hearts. Second thing, Paul wants us to hope in the fact that we are God's inheritance. That God not, didn't just adopt us as a charity case, right? Like we're the... The, the little kid on a Dickens novel or something like that. God, oh, come on, I guess you can come into my family and I'll feed you. No, God actually sees us as his inheritance. His inheritance. He, he thinks so highly of you and me. He chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be part of his people. And then gives you one of the most dignified lives in all of the world to be his representatives on earth. To reflect what's going on in heaven. That's amazing. And I can tell you, you know, I, I say those words, I don't fully get that. And I'm looking at the glaze. Yeah, you say that every week. I'm going to say it next week too. Because we need to hear this good news. You don't need my good advice. You need to hear, this is reality. And what we're praying for, what Paul is praying for, is that the Spirit would open up the aperture to our hearts, our eyes a little bit more, a little bit more, and we'll see the picture in more and more reality. Third, and this is a big one, Paul wants us to hope in God's power toward you, toward us who believe. This is a big one, because unless God is able to do all the wonderful things that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1-14, through 14, there is no hope in you being chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. There is no hope in all things being summed up in Christ. There is no good news in being called or in being God's inheritance if God is unable to do these things. And Paul knows that. In fact, Paul knows a little bit more than that. He knows that the people of Ephesus, like so many other places in the Roman world, were deeply superstitious and fearful of spiritual powers. They thought that everything that happened was the result of some boogeyman or a spiritual force working against them. Their religion was an economy of fear. 
It was an exchange of sacrifices for goods and services from a local deity. So Paul reminds us that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, who was deader than dead, dead on a cross by professional executioners of the Roman Empire who knew how to kill people, dead in a grave for three days, guarded by Roman soldiers, dead. That same God who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, which no one else could do, none of the other local deities could claim to do, had never been done, that's the God who is promising all of these things. And it's more than just Jesus being raised from the dead. It's His ascension and being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's not describing His geographical location, by the way. Like He's not just stuck on the throne next to God in some other place. It's describing His authority. To sit at the right hand of the King or the right hand of the Father meant that that person was an agent of the King or an agent of the Father with the full authority and full power of the Father. And this Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Jesus is above everyone and everything for all time. Evil spiritual forces, they're real. Like, how do you explain the leader of Syria? How do you explain that when a leader kills thousands of their own people to maintain their position of power. How do you explain that? That is evil. That is demonic. But notice how little description there is in the Bible about these forces. Whenever you see a demon mentioned in the New Testament, in the Old Testament it was different. In the Old Testament you've got Michael the archangel, who I'm I'm at is one bad angel, right? That dude is tough. Uh, and he has to tell Daniel, a human being, uh, sorry I was delayed, I was kind of in a fight over Babylon. I mean, that, that's, that's real. But in the New Testament, you don't read the, that type of story. You, you, anytime you encounter a spiritual dark force, it's getting cast out by Jesus. Or, or Paul's teaching about how they're defeated in Jesus. Alright? We need not fear. Jesus has been raised from the dead and is above all things. Amen? That's good news. And this power of God in Jesus that Paul speaks of is not some kind of new thing. It's not like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my son like a superhero. So I'm going to give him power over all these things. Paul is actually drawing on a much larger story. He's drawing on the story of Israel, which is exactly why I asked Collins to read Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. The plan had always been for the Son of God to emerge from the nation of Israel through the line of Abraham and to give himself in death and to reign at the Father's right hand. That was the plan. Centuries before Paul was writing this, the psalmist wrote of God's Son being being on the throne, as Collins read earlier. And if we keep reading in Ephesians 1.22, we're going to read this. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Directly from Psalm 8, where all things are supposed to be under whose feet? Our feet. They're supposed to be under our feet. And that doesn't mean that we crush the world. It means that we're responsible for it. Made in the image of God, 
And then in Genesis 2, it talks about how God gave us a holy vocation to care for the world, reflect His glory to one another. And when Adam and Eve abdicated that responsibility, there's a problem that has not been solved yet until Christ. Which, if you're nerdy like me and you like the Lord of the Rings books, consider what the character of Tom Bombadil and his lady friend are. I think that's uh, maybe an allusion to Adam and Eve had they not fallen. But that's another nerdy talk we can have over dinner. Sorry, Collins, if you've just seen the movies, it doesn't work. It's not in that. (laughs) Jesus is the one who does what Adam and Eve and Israel and we cannot do. And now we're called to be his people in Christ. And it's God's power who raised Jesus from the dead and accomplishes all of this. Amen? Yes. So now what? What does this mean? This hope in Christ's supremacy over all structures of oppression, spiritual or material, it ought to change how you and I live. We ought not be able to hear this message. I'm speaking to myself. And and go and live exactly the same as when we came. How will it change us? Well, I have some suggestions based on the text. Number one. There's three, of course. Number one. I think it would do us well to know the God that Paul prays we would know. To know the God Paul prays we would know. How do we do that? Um, I was thinking, (laughs) you know what came to my mind when I was thinking about this? Geysers. I don't know. Been to Yellowstone? You've seen the geysers, right? Uh, There's like Old Faithful, and it, I don't remember, every hour and a half or something, it shoots up, and it's there. And then there's other geysers that just kind of randomly go off, right? Um, You you can't necessarily control how the geysers work or when they go off. They're just going to do it. Uh, But one thing is for sure, you will not see a geyser if you stay in Bellingham your whole life. Or if you do, something's really shifted tectonically or something. But uh, you've got to kind of go to where the geysers are. Even though they're sporadic, you've got to go there in order to have even a chance to see them. And there's some places, some thin places in the world that that God has given us, that we've learned over time, that that the spiritual uh, fathers and, and, and mothers before us have told us about. And one of those places is Scripture. Go figure. God shows up, reveals Himself in Scripture. We are the people of the book we have more access to the, to the Bible on free apps on our phones. You can take the Bible in the pew. I, we bought those so that they would be cheap. You can take them home. If you want a Bible in this culture, you can have a Bible. And yet, we are increasingly biblically illiterate. Even if you're raised in the church, even if you're raised in the church, there are just some of the basic things that we as the church don't know. Get in the Word. I'm saying this is not going to save you. But if you want to meet God, that's a great place to start. Know Him through prayer. That communication with God. And when I say that, I'm not going to preach now a whole other message on what prayer is. That would take a lifetime. But show up. Show up with Him. Say, God, what do you want to say to me today? If you don't pray at all, try five minutes. Five minutes is not going to kill you. Just sit before the Lord. And see how God might reveal himself to you. Know this God through community. Through maybe a Bible study or a spiritual friendship. Because you can't be on all the time. And when I'm down, I need my my peeps around me to lift me up, to speak the things of God to me. People who have been in the word and in prayer and who can reflect 
godness to me. I need community. And know God by showing up for this. You're already doing it. But what is this? What is this Sunday? I didn't like all the songs. I don't like this preacher. Uh, I, I'm uncomfortable with the silence. That communion stuff's weird. Uh, it, it, it is a weird thing. It's not like as fun as going to a movie or a Sounders game or something like that. But yet, show up to church. Why? Because by showing up for worship, we sing the story. And we pray the story. And we read the story. And we preach the story. And we participate in the story in the sacraments. Eugene Peterson said this, to walk of discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Very rarely is there just magic that happens on the spot. But it's a life lived, one foot in front of the other, letting these truths rub off on us. I'm a big believer in that. Number two, pay, pray, pray Paul's prayer. Say that fast. Pray Paul's prayer. Pray for our eyes, not just yours. All of this is in the plural. Paul is always addressing the church here. Pray that our eyes, pray for your brothers and sisters in letter streets and the church around the world. Pray that our eyes would be filled with the light of God. That we would be filled with hope. Notice how Paul doesn't pray for a bunch of stuff. How he doesn't pray for a bunch of new revelation or awesome spiritual superpowers. He just prays that we would get the stuff that's already been revealed. It's more than enough. It's more than enough. Finally, number three, take one step of faith. Oftentimes, God shows up when you do something that only God can help you with. If Christ is above all powers... And if we are found in Christ, then there is nothing, not even death, that can ultimately undo us. What risks would you take in the power of Christ? And maybe the big risk for you is not doing something more, but doing something less. Because your identity is entirely wrapped up in what you're producing. Maybe it's serving someone who can't serve you back. Maybe it's trusting Jesus more with your money or possessions by giving more freely or more generously. Maybe it involves intentionally loving, maybe it's just intentionally having a conversation with some person this month, one person who's different than you. Hard to love. I guess maybe my questions limit us because they make us think down certain lines of thought. So let me ask this. How has Jesus been inviting you further up and farther in, but you've been afraid to follow? I want to encourage you to pay, pay attention to resistance. Because where you find resistance a lot of times is right where God is knocking on your door. Saying, son or daughter, I want to show you a whole new way of life. It's going to blow your mind. Would you pray with me? Lord, I have nothing more to add to Paul's words. Won't you please, please, open the eyes of our hearts. Fill them with the light of your truth. Help us to know you. Lord, I pray for grace 
for each one of us to be drawn into your word, to be drawn into prayer. Holy Spirit, please tap on our shoulder. We have spiritual ADD. And Lord, we humbly confess we need your help to even seek you. May your will be done in our hearts and our lives and in this world as it is in heaven. Amen.